I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this next episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk Northern Ireland. We'll talk the Trade Guys dancing on TikTok and the Chips Act, plus what's going on with U.S. sanctions on Russia, all on this next episode of The Trade Guys. Trade guys, let's kick off this week with the post-Brexit news, which, of course, relates to the Northern Ireland Protocol. The question, I guess, I want to put to you is, will Prime Minister Sunak of England be able to garner political support for this Windsor framework? What do you guys think? First, I think it's refreshing to have a solution. This has been a stumbling block both for the relationship between the UK and, and the Euro- European uh, Union. Yeah, this is a big deal. Which So it's a big deal. It's a big deal for the direct parties. It's also a big deal for those economies who are considering free trade agreements with the UK because it clarifies a key issue. That's the case for the United States. And I think it's why the, many people in Washington are, are encouraged by that. Now, this took a while, okay? It's hard, it's hard to remember that we're like five prime ministers from the original Brexit referendum. Which is really incredible if you think about it. Quite remarkable. 2016 was the year of the referendum, the summer of the referendum, passed very narrowly. That was David Cameron's Conservative Party. Uh, He resigned as a result of losing the referendum. He was on the Remain side. But he was followed by Theresa May, Boris Johnson, Elizabeth Truss, and now Richie Sunak. Right. All Tory prime ministers. We did, you didn't have an intervening labor government, but this has been a sort of a painful, difficult, drawn out issue. Now, as I recall, when he was a, a, a member of parliament, uh, Richie Sunak was with Remain Group. So he is not a Brexiteer by any means, yet he's taking responsibility to try to solve this problem. He's a business guy. Yes, basically. And I think many of the business people who are affected by the Ireland, Northern Ireland border matters. They want clarity about this. They want to be able to plan their business and and organize. Now, it looks to me this is a classic example of European soft power because the commission never changed. I mean, people changed, but their point of view never changed. And they probably just warmed down at some point. But you you even had a change in the crown. Queen Elizabeth was was queen. Now it's King Charles. So there's a lot going on, a lot of moving pieces. One of the things about the parliamentary system in Britain is that a prime minister and his or her cabinet have effective operational control of the government. So they can actually implement this. The question is, will they be able to keep faith with the voters who put them in the majority? And that, for me, I don't know the answer to that. I haven't seen any polling on it. Clearly, the last election, the success of the Tories was based on picking up seats that have been labor seats for a long time. There was so, so there's some writings in the north of, of, of England that were longtime labor strongholds, but were for Brexit and therefore supported at that time Prime Minister Johnson's election. Nobody's published any data on that yet or any polling. So I'm interested to see it. I'm hap- happy for the certainty. Glad the stumbling blocks lifted. The politics are yet to be managed. Bill, how effective do you think this agreement actually is or will be in addressing the Northern Ireland tensions that came from Brexit? Well, there will be leakage, but 
before we do that, I want to go back to politics for a minute. We had a meeting this week with somebody fresh from the UK who's following this fairly closely. And it was Chatham House rules, so I can't say who it was. But Was it Tony, was it Tony Blair? It was not Tony Blair, no. <laughs> but it was interesting. Uh, on the overall politics, I think the prevailing view there seems to be that barring, you know, cataclysmic events, Labor is going to win the next election, although the next election is not until probably 2025. So something that had not occurred to me that I thought was interesting was that one of the things that will contribute to Labor's future strength has been the resignation of the, the head of the Scottish Nationalist Party in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, because that there's no obvious successor. There will be one. They'll pick somebody. But one of the things that contributed to the Conservatives' victory the last several elections has been the weak showing of Labour in Scotland as the, the Nationalist Party has taken the, the lion's share of the votes there. If the Nationalist Party ends up in at least short-term disarray, there's a feeling that, that Labour could come back in Scotland uh, which would provide, uh, not necessarily to control the Scottish government, but it would provide a lot more seats in the British Parliament. As for the remit itself, which is being called, I think, the Windsor approach, I think his assessment, and I agree with it, was it'll go through the British Parliament. The Labour leader already said that they'll support it. So I think if you've got Labour and at least a significant chunk of the Conservatives, as opposed to, you know, th th there are some diehard people that will probably break away, but it, it looks like it will pass there. Uh, the unknown is what uh, the Northern Ireland parties will do. The Democratic Unionist Party has taken itself out of the government in Northern Ireland in, in protest over this particular issue. And I don't think they've sent clear signals yet about what their intentions are with respect to this new agreement. They said they wanted to look at it closely. It gives them a number of things. The EU did change its position on some items. I think the most significant one for Northern Ireland is what's being referred to as the Stormont break. Stormont is the is the Northern Ireland Parliament building. And it's a provision that says if there are 30 members of, the, of that parliament that are unhappy with a provision of the agreement, uh, they can stop it and force further negotiations on what to do with it. Apparently, this is the same deal that Norway has with the EU and has had with the EU for years. And it's one of those things that was put in to ensure development of a accommodating trade relationship between Norway and the EU. This made the Norwegians happy. They've never used it, but it exists. And the fact that it exists provides a degree of comfort. I think there's some hope that in the uh, Northern Ireland case, it'll end up being the same thing. It'll get the, uh, the hardliners in, in Belfast to go along, but that in reality, it'll never be employed. And so in the end, everybody's happy. As for effectiveness, you know, it, it's going to invite cheating, um, wait, wait, Bill, I have to ask, was the Chatham House source Mick Jagger? <laughs> no. Van Morrison? No, but stop asking me. That's over three. Eventually you'll get to the right one and I won't be able to. Uh, All right, one more, one more. David Beckham. <laughs> not, not David Beckham either. Okay. All right. Well, I know it's going to come to me. This gives me the opportunity to tell you my Mick Jagger joke, but I'm not going to do that. I've okay. told it to Andrew before. Mick Jagger's not a joking matter with me, Bill. This is about Kermit Jagger, if you remember, the uh, the frog that wanted a loan. But, uh, <laughs> no, I don't. But anyway, I interrupted you. Well, yes, so what, you about the, what about the effectiveness of the agreement? It invites cheating. I mean, they set up a red lane and a green lane. The green lane is for stuff that's going to going to Northern Ireland, that's going to stay in Northern Ireland, and it can go through without any customs clearance. The red lane is for stuff that is going to go on into Ireland, which means going to 
go on into the EU, and that's going to be subject to uh, border checks and customs checks. The thing about it is they're not going to be at the Ireland, Northern Ireland border, which the uh, Good Friday Agreement required to be taken down. They're going to be at the port. So when stuff lands at the port of Belfast or whatever, Derry, whatever the port happens to be, at that point, if it goes into the red lane, there will be customs checks. If you've been to Europe, you know, most customs authorities there use a red lane, green lane system for normal entry. And if you walk through the green, nobody looks at you. Well, you know, that invites cheating. That's probably will happen here. So, you know, look for implementation issues down the road. I suspect, you know, if people start trying to ship stuff in in bulk, for further transit to Ireland and then into the uh, the rest of the EU, the authorities will notice. But one-off things, if you know somebody's traveling who's carrying you know a laptop for his sister, and his sister lives in Dublin and in Ireland, and he just takes it across the border through the green lane. I don't think that nobody's going to care, but this invites that kind of thing. But so two years from now, we'll find out, you know, if if there's an implementation problem or or not. My guess is this is one where there will be implementation problems, but most people are going to look the other way uh, in the interest of keeping everything stable. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Bill. Look, the honor system is, is a good solution and much preferable to a land border. All the troubles led to the agreement to eliminate the land border, putting it back in for customs checks. I'm glad they found another outcome, even if you're right, there will be a little a smidgen of customs fraud here and there. So guys, how has the Biden administration responded to the agreement? And does it have any impact or on the U.S.-U.K. trade agreement? Good question. They've responded positively, as have most outside observers. I think the conventional wisdom was that from Biden's perspective and Biden personally, he was not going to move forward on any U.S.-U.K. deal unless this problem was solved. So that removes an obstacle. That said, you know, the U.S. position on free trade agreements generally has not changed. And its position on this one has not changed, although there were two developments yesterday that are worth noting. First of all, Politico did an interview with Ambassador Tai where this came up for uh, free trade agreements generally came up. And she had a slightly different answer than she said before. She said she basically her answer was uh, not now, but that doesn't mean not ever. And we might come back to them at some point in the future. But right now, it's not the way to go. That was a slightly different position than she's taken before, which was sort of not now and not for the foreseeable future. That was number one. Number two was that Senator Coons and Senator Thunes, which makes it bipartisan, introduced a bill yesterday to set up basically trade negotiating authority for a U.S.-U.K. agreement, specifically for U.S.-U.K. For Coons, this is an old bill. He did it last year with Portman. Portman's gone, so this year he did it with Thune. But that's important because it's bipartisan. And there have been a number of Republicans, mostly from farm states, Thune is from South Dakota, who have said, we need to go back to trade agreements because market access is important for our farmers, which they're exactly right about. They do my column this week on this. And Thune going on this bill, I think, is a sign of something that I actually wrote about a couple of weeks ago, which is there's some modest awakening in Congress on trade and some modest pushback of, of the Biden approach. And if Coons does it, who's close to Biden, you know, this is a sign that there's some uh, bipartisan sense in Congress that, you know, maybe we can do market access at the same time that we're doing all this other stuff. So, you know, nothing imminent, no immediate change. But if you look down the road, I see some signs of thaw here. I hope you're, hope you're right, Bill. But certainly this particular 
element was it necessary to, to resolve, but not sufficient to get over the other hurdles. And so the real question is, what does sufficiency look like? And can we get, can we get things going now that this necessary condition has been met? Speaking of the Biden administration, the administration recently announced new rules for implementing the CHIPS Act. What is all this about? What are the new rules? Well, it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out because it's kind of another example of things that people agonize over. You know, you've got a policy and you're trying to do an important thing, in this case, revitalize the American semiconductor sector. And then you start trying to do a whole bunch of things along with it. And then that raises the question, the extent to which you're really moving farther away from your main goal rather than closer to it. Basically, they're implementing the bill, which has a Enormous pile of money, $52 billion for chips. And they've now come out with, with the strings that are going to be attached. I've sort of looked at the strings in three categories. The first one isn't really a string, but it's important. It's important. They've decided to not just give money in grants, but to do it in loans and loan guarantees as well. That's a good thing because that will magnify or increase the no amount of money that's available. You know, if all you're doing is a loan guarantee, what you're doing is encouraging private sector investment in the sector. And what you're telling the private investor is the government will back the loan. If there's a default, the government will step in and pay. That makes an investor much more likely to engage in the investment. But it, it also means for the federal government, they don't have to set aside and reserve the full amount of that loan in their budget. They can make multiple loan guarantees and make a much bigger program. So smart move. The second set of strings is a bunch of national security strings most of which they knew was, were coming, the companies knew were coming. If you take the money, you can't build a factory in China for the next 10 years. You can't transfer technology to China. You're not going to be able to invest in Chinese companies. These are not a surprise, and I don't think they're going to be controversial. This is a sector where we're sensitive about investment in China, and I don't think, you know, there are probably some companies that want to do that. I don't think anything, anybody's going to be surprised, but it is a set of compliance issues for companies that they're going to have to make sure that they're addressing. The third set is the one that's going to raise the most controversy, and that's the set that involves a variety of social and economic objectives. So if you take the money, you have to make sure that the plant you're building is built with union labor. You have to establish a daycare program for your workers. You have to establish a worker development and workforce training program for your workers. On the economic side, you have to commit to no stock buybacks and you can't put the money into dividends. And there's a bunch of other things that are sort of in the same category. You know, the interesting thing about these is, I, I would argue anyway, they're all sort of good things in and of themselves. The question will be, are there so many of them? And is the compliance burden so great, paperwork, et cetera, that companies are just going to decide this is, it's not worth it. If I have to do all these things to get the money, I'm not going to do that. I suspect the money is so big that they won't decide that, you know, and they'll take the money and comply. But the only way to know is have them go forward and see what happens. But I do think there's a possibility here that some companies are going to say this is simply too great a burden on us and we're going to go private entirely so we don't have to deal with any of these strings. You know, Secretary Armando's position is, I think, entirely understandable, sort of my money, my rules. And so you can't really say, no, you, you can't attach strings when you're giving away billions of dollars. Of course, they can attach strings. The issue, of course, is if you attach too many strings, then companies are going to say, we're not going to bother. And that's the question where we'll have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, look, this is classic Washington. What started off as a very simple idea managed to get extraordinarily complex. Okay, The simple idea of chips when it was first proposed was essentially a matching fund that 
you look for places where state sub subsidies or incentives had been approved and the federal government would match the incentive. Okay. Now that had a, a couple of things like the, the, that at least I liked. First is states tend to be less magnanimous with subsidies and, and incentives because they have to balance their budgets annually. There was a limiting factor on the degree of, uh, let's call it competition for the investment dollars, but it, it capped the subsidies. It also left people close to the decisions that is, state departments and agencies and governors left them sort of in the driver's seat about which subsidies for whom and to what to, and how much. We've clearly gotten away from that. We've now we've now driven all the way to something that feels like 1970s French industrial policy, you know, <laughs> with, 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 which was a socialist dream but didn't result in competitive industries. <laughs> so and Bill has Bill has described the. I don't know where this goes over the edge, but. You know, look, subsidies always have a price. There's an expectation that the government would have requirements on this, but they're taking over the HR department and a couple of board seats. And they're limiting shareholder returns. So I don't know where this ends. I, I will tell you one thing. This is an industry that is unique in its huge requirements for capital, very capital intensive business and a very short product life cycle. So the reason subsidies matter so much in in IT equipment is that you never really pay out your massive investment because of the of the cycle time of the industry itself. That means you're in an industry that you're competing against time. And to the extent that these programs, the subsidies programs, project labor requirements, so workforce requirements, childcare requirements, to the effect that slows down the implementation, you're defeating the purpose that led to the subsidies in the first place. So we'll, we'll see what happens. A friend of the program, uh, John Newfer, who was a former trade negotiator, who now heads the companies in this business, the trade association, said it was a good start. I don't know. I don't know what start was good, but whether that means more subsidies in the future or more rules, but it was an interesting comment. Well, John's pushing the envelope a little bit because he and others have come in on the environmental side and said that if you want us to build all these plants, we need an exception from NEPA, the National Environmental Protection Act. I think is a what the P stands for, which is the act, long-standing act that goes back years that imposes environmental conditions on emissions. And, and, you know, and the reality is semiconductor manufacturer is an environmentally complex business. They use an enormous amount of water and they, they have detritus or remains of minerals and things that are not good for the environment. So telling them they have to meet NEPA requirements is not a small cost-free thing. And that may be as much about time as it is about the performance. Of I, I don't think they're going to get the exception yeah. they, that they want. NEPA slows things down. And once again, you're competing against time. Yeah. And these are the trade-offs. You know, if you, right. if, if you want your plants built clean and green, it's going to take longer and cost more money. And that's what the industry is saying. On the other hand, do you want them built dirty and have the people in the immediate area have a water problem or a pollution problem, or do you want to build uh, in foreign in foreign uh, jurisdictions? You definitely don't want dirty water, dirty environment. This is how the industry moved from Santa Clara County, California, Silicon Valley, to the world. So, just just saying. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Um, Easy for us to say they're not going to build one in Bethesda, right? <laughs> no, even though we have a lot of water here, the West does not have a lot of water. Well, we do. We can, you know, take over the Potomac and divert part of it to these plants. That would 
That would get I'm a lot still, of people upset. I'll, you yeah, know, I'll let I, you I, do the NEPA study on that one. <laughs> right. That's not going to go well for uh, those of us who live in Bethesda and Potomac and on that other side of the river in Virginia. Guys, I'm still stuck on who is Bill's Chatham House source? My gosh. I'll tell you when we're done. Okay. All right. <laughs> Bill is, is, is behaving very responsibly with regard to agreements reached. So at CSIS, we have open, honest discussions in our round yes. meeting. So loose lips sink ships. Good for you, Bill. This is the one of the few times it worked. The last time we, I went through this, we were briefing a bunch of Hill staff and we said Chatham House rule. We can't. We, the, we talked to a bunch of people on, on the left wing of the Democratic Party, the progressives on IPATH as it happened. And within 30 seconds, they all knew exactly who I was talking about, uh, <laughs> e- even though I never mentioned the name. So, of course, it's Washington. Come on. It's Washington, exactly. This town. Guys, lastly, I want to talk today about something that's really been on the forefront of a lot of people's minds this week. Since last week, CIA Director Bill Burns discussed what they think is happening with China in terms of potentially sending weapons, equipment to Russia. Secretary Blinken's recent warnings at the Munich Security Conference suggest China is considering taking a more active role in the conflict. Of course, this begs the question, if China were to do something like this, what is our recourse? Of course, it's got to be trade. So what do you guys think about all that? I'm worried that we're, we're descending into paranoia. And, and one of the, it's like they used to say about you know, the, the genius of comedy is that there's a grain of truth in there somewhere, but it's an exaggeration. I think we're dealing with that now. You know, these are not non-zero risks. I mean, the immediate one is the House Foreign Affairs Committee yesterday voted to ban TikTok, thereby enraging, you know, the 100 million Americans who use it. Including many members of Congress who helped get themselves reelected using TikTok, considering Gen Z and first-time voters, their primary news source has become TikTok. Which may be why this never gets any farther than the committee vote, which ended up being partisan to the surprise of some people. But, you know, the point Part, is... Partisan in what direction? Isn't this a bipartisan thing on TikTok? A dislike of TikTok? That's the surprise. The Republicans all voted to ban it. The Democrats all opposed the bill. Really? In part on the grounds that it was, and I think correctly, that it was poorly drafted, not vetted. There'd been no, no hearing, uh, no real committee consideration. It was being kind of crammed down their throats on short notice. So we'll see how far it gets. But Democrats in general have not been soft on this issue or certainly on on Huawei. No, no, this is one where President Trump used the International Economic Emergency Powers Act to try to ban it. He lost in court. But when President Trump did that, Senator Mark Warner, chairman of the the Senate Intelligence Committee, said, hey, you know, I think he's got a point. So there's your bipartisanship. It's just how you do it is... uh, is, is open to question. That became the issue, although that kind of isn't the main point. The issue is that in IEPA, in the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, which is the thing you use when you want to do something like this, there's a provision known as the Berman Amendment, named after Howard Berman. I remember it because it's on the Hill when all this happened. And basically it says, if you're going to impose sanctions, you can't impose sanctions on information. When Berman did this, he was thinking newspapers, magazines, radio, TV broadcast, things like that, because this was in the 70s. You it know? was Cold War. And he wanted to make sure that in the American point of view, as exemplified by you know the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or anybody, the L.A. Times, that's where he represented, that we could still get into Russia 
or could still get into China. And if the Chinese didn't want to let it in, that was their business. But we were not going to stop it from going in. So that underlies U.S. sanctions throughout. There's also a humanitarian exemption uh, on sanctions for basically for food and medicine, which is a different issue. TikTok is not food or medicine, I don't think. Food for the soul, maybe. But hey, not. look, all I know is if I could get the trade guys dancing on TikTok, <laughs> it would go viral. Okay. Yeah, don't hold that would go that. viral and our listenership would increase, you know, a hundredfold. So it, it might be a partisan or a bipartisan issue in terms of banning it. But what I do know is if I got the trade guys dancing on TikTok, we really would have something. You'll have to talk to my agent about that. <laughs> Getting back to the point, I think the bill that they voted on would amend the Berman Amendment and narrow it. And that gives people pause because when you start to say, all right, there are some media media things you can ban. That's kind of a slippery slope. You know, it's, it may not just be TikTok. Uh, it may be a lot of other things and people who believe in the First Amendment. And this is why Trump lost in court, because the argument was that this was a uh, contravened the First Amendment. You're getting into dangerous constitutional territory here. And I think the Democrats said it deserves more thought at a minimum. The dilemma, which is where I kind of began with this, was that TikTok is not a zero risk thing. There's a lot of data that is that they accumulate and the two questions are, one, do the Chinese get that data and can they do something with it? Exactly what that might be gets tends not to be answered. And two, could the Chinese use TikTok as a platform for disinformation and not show videos or whatever you call it, the TikTok things that were critical of China uh, and, and you know, fill up the, the airspace with videos that were critical of the United States or, or praiseworthy, praising China? So there are things to worry about. And so the question, the paranoia issue is, is that the biggest problem we have? And I would say this is probably number 47 on the number of the problems we have with China. Right. But it's very quickly become number one. And that concerns me. Right. But so, you know, maybe the number one concern really actually is, though, is China going to intervene and take a more active role in the Ukraine-Russia conflict? And and you think the answer, well, yes, that's the problem. But I take it, Bill, you think the concerns about this may be overblown or the ch or the chances that they'll do it might be overblown. What we're seeing now is is the Congress, which wants to strike out against China for any number of reasons, trying to think of new things they can do to hit the Chinese. And in doing that, uh, they risk going overboard. And the, the problem is there are real risks. There are real problems. And it's not just, you know, what started all this was the, the, the fear that China was going to invade Taiwan. The new reports now are China's considering, you know, that Secretary Blinken began. It's not made up. The intelligence reports suggest China is contemplating sending weapons to Russia. If they haven't appeared already, you're going to be seeing news reports shortly about China shipping drones to Russia, which, if you think about it, is not a surprise since China is the biggest player in the drone market in the world. Drones, drones are going to get into Russia. Some of them are probably going to be Chinese. The next shoe that will drop will be the inevitable investigation when, you know, some Chinese drone gets shot down over Ukraine. The research institution in the UK that does this sort of thing comes in and, and picks up all the pieces, which they did for Russian missiles in last summer and fall, and examines the pieces and then figures out whether or not there are American parts in the Chinese drones. I have a feeling that there may not be. It's a Chinese company. It's a market leader. It's not a high-tech technology. They don't need American chips to run their drones, I don't think. But we'll see. You can see how this, you know, this keeps building up and building up. There, at least, you've got a military angle. They're shipping drones that are going to blow up Ukrainian buildings and kill Ukrainian soldiers. 
that is a security issue that's doing something about it is consistent with our, our policy, our security policy. But that's a whole order of magnitude different from TikTok. Well, I think we're going to have to spend some time talking about what are the trade implications of China's involvement or lack of involvement, certainly, in this conflict. Scott, what are your thoughts on this? Well, look, it, I think we're, we're once again reaching the limits of what sanctions can do. I always remind people, North Korea has been sanctioned for 70 years. How's that going? Cuba. Cuba has been sanctioned, you know, since the Kennedy administration. Been a total embargo, basically. Okay, how's that going for you? Well, you know, these things run out of steam and, you know, the, the, the marginal benefit versus marginal cost, the unfavorable equation to the group that's trying to lay down more sanctions. So that's, that's the first point. Second is, I'd watch the geopolitics carefully because China also came up with their 12-point plan for peace that everybody but NATO is saying nice things about. So I think that through is part of this as well. We don't seem to have much in our arsenal besides all the equipment Ukraine wants the Russians to blow up and lots of sanctions. So, And, you know, of course, sanctioning China hurts U.S. businesses. It's, so it's, it hurts, it's a it's a, hurts it's a, a lot. And, you know, and they're not the only country that sells arms to foreign nations. That's right. The United States does that, too. So. Sure. All right, guys. Great talk today. I'll talk to your agent, Scott, because like if we can get people, you know, trade guys dancing on TikTok, we're really going to have some. <laughs> <laughs> Always count on you for the great ideas, Andrew. Okay, Thanks. guys. See ya. Take care. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.